Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. We're happy to invite our brother Ken back up for our Bible Instruction Time. Brother Ken, please. Well, it's good to be with you all again. It's always a joy for us to come down and spend a a few weeks at Claremont. We always look forward to this time, and uh, we look forward to what the Lord has in store for us in these in these weeks that are before us. Uh, if you turn with me this morning to First Kings, First um, Kings chapter sixteen is where we'll begin. Uh, this is the first time in quite some time that I have taught from a Bible narrative. Teaching from a Bible narrative has its own unique challenges. Speaking from Bible narrative has its certain inherent challenges that, uh, that we have to face as a teacher of the Word of God. We recognize that the biblical or the Bible is like 40% narrative. So eventually you cannot avoid speaking from narrative because it, is, it contains such a large portion of the Word of God. Uh, it is the largest portion of, uh, of the scripture is found in narrative form. And storytelling is, of course, the primary reason for these accounts of scripture. They tell us the story of faith. They tell us the story and biography of men. They tell us about all the dealings of God with men, with different kinds of men, with different types of men. And so narrative becomes a very important for us. But in narrative, it is always the challenge. Actually, narrative is not hard to interpret, is it? Because it says what it is. It's just telling you a story. So interpreting it is not all that difficult. Although sometimes we as preachers like to make it difficult, but it's not really all that difficult. The difficult part with biblical narrative is the application thereof to life. Oftentimes, we as preachers, and you as preachers and teachers of the Word of God, we take the narrative and then say, well, because they did that, don't you do that. Because they acted that way, you act that way. And, and so it is. And, and, and that's the way narrative sometimes falls application-wise. But again, we want to make sure that our interpretation, I mean, our application always follows an accurate interpretation of the portions that we are in. And so that becomes the primary task of a teacher uh, of narrative is to see the story, understand what the story is saying, and then make application from what the story is saying. And so we'll try to proceed along those lines. How successful we'll be, I do not know. You will be the judge of that. So let's go to this portion in, in 1 Kings chapter 16. And the only reason I go to 16, we're going to be speaking on Elijah these several weeks that we have before us, these several se sessions that we have together. We're going to be speaking on Elijah. Speaking on Elijah is one that we all know the stories. We all know them. We've learned them since we were children in, in Sunday school. We've heard the great stories of Elijah and, and what the Lord did through Elijah. So these will not be unfamiliar stories to us. But I want to, by reading this last section of, King, of, of chapter 16, set a background a little bit for the coming of Elijah. We recognize a lot of history has taken place. It's been 
It's been many years since the time of David. Over 150 years since the time of David in a united kingdom. It has been many years since the time of Solomon that started out so good. Started out with such a wonderful reign of peace and prosperity and then the falling away of Solomon and the erecting of all kinds of images and the high places around Jerusalem for the many wives that he he obtained throughout the years of his, his kingship. And now we come down tragically to this part, part of Scripture. And we'll see this a little bit more as we travel through it. But you are, again, very familiar with these portions. We're going to begin in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. Now we are talking about a divided kingdom now. And we'll see that as we move along. Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than any who were before him. Now we we hear that phrase frequently as we read through uh, the scripture, that this king did worse than the king before him. And we are seeing a progression that is moving down in evil. We see it stated of Omri, his father. Omri did more evil than the ones who were before him. Then you get to the next king down, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so progressively things are getting worse. And people in the nation of Israel to the north are falling away more and more rapidly from the law and from the teachings of God and into a degraded society. And so he goes on and he says in verse 31, And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nabat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab built a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations with Abram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Sigup. He set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun, and Elisha, the Tishbite, of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel dwells, before whom I stand, there shall be There shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan, and it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. 
And the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, again, we seek the help of thy spirit to understand the things that you would have us to know. We know that you have given these things to us for our learning, because the things that were written of old were there for our learning. And so, Father, teach us the things you would have us to know, the things that you would have us to learn through the life of these individuals. And so, Father, we commit our time into your care, asking for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. In a Focus on the Family Forum, it was said, two-fifths of self-identified Christians say, do anything you want, just don't hurt anyone. Do anything you want, just don't hurt anyone, and everything will be A-OK. That was not the philosophy of Elijah. That was not the philosophy of Moses. That was not the philosophy of any of the prophets. It certainly wasn't the philosophy of the Lord Jesus, nor was it the philosophy of the apostles that followed him. Nor should it be our philosophy in the day in which we live. Just just do anything you want. Just don't offend anybody. Don't hurt anybody's feelings. Just do whatever you want, as long as you stay away from hurting anybody. They spoke the word. The, the, the prophets of old and the apostles, the Lord Jesus, spoke the word of God into an immoral world. They spoke the word of God into an immoral world and did not hold back, did not soften the words in order to conform to anyone, to anyone's standard, except for the standard that God had laid down. They weren't to conform. So in his mind, in his soul, the soul and mind of Elijah, there could be no compromise. So the question becomes, and here we go moralizing already, and we've just begun. The lesson becomes for us, how does one live for the Lord in the midst of a moral and spiritually declining nation in which we live? How does one live for the Lord in the midst of moral and spiritual decline all around you, all around me? How do we live in a decline in, in morale, morality in the home and in your place of work and in the church where compromise and pluralism is the order of the day? Do what you want to do. Live the way you want to live. As long as you don't hurt anybody, it should be okay. It's not the way God sees things. It's not the way God would have us to be. Well, I suppose, how do we find out? How do we live? I think we have to go back to the very basics. I think we have to go back to the basics. A relationship, first of all, a relationship with the Lord that is moment by moment. A relationship with the Lord that is not casual, not for Sunday morning and Wednesday evening only, but a a vibrant living relationship with the Lord that is moment by moment, that permeates all of our life, that are from the source from which we get our passion for all that we do. 
The passion, even in our secular work, comes from a passion that you have to serve the Lord in all that you do and say that He would be honored. A passion for the Lord in all that we do. So to have this relationship with the Lord that is moment by moment in real time, that is a faith that is growing and maturing that will sustain us without compromise. Without compromise. Secondly, a knowledge of His Word. A knowledge of the Word of the Lord has given direction to our steps. And a knowledge of the Word of God is essential for us if we are to live in a world of moral decline. We have to know why it is wrong. Why can't we do this? Why do we abhor that? Why do we not agree? Why can't we compromise? Why don't we compromise? With all of the things that we see around us, where compromise is, is just rampant. We must have a knowledge of the Word of God. An understanding of the Word of God. And then an obedience to that which we've learned. It's good to have a knowledge of the Word of God, but the knowledge of the Word of God is not designed just to make you full of knowledge. The knowledge of the Word of God is so that we would obey so that we would know Him and know what it is that He desires from us and then have a heart that is willing to obey those things which He has shown to us. All right. Thanks, Tyler, for reading that portion again in First uh, Kings. I'd like to go back and just read the one verse again out of chapter 17. You know, preachers always have to read a portion of Scripture before they get started. Somehow we just can't get the engine cranked unless there's, we've read something before we uh, go into it and delve into it. So I'd like to read that first verse of chapter 17, first, first two verses. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him. And so we'll trust the reading of his word to his care. Father, we give you thanks. We pray for your blessing and encouragement on your word today and on your people. We pray that you would encourage us to live for you. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we ended our last time session. I don't need to go back and and review again because it's been such a sh short time ago. But we were we were looking at how how does one now live in a in a society where there's such moral decline? How do you live in a society as as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in a in a place in a society and in a culture that is in such steep moral decline and spiritual decline all around us? Because it's not only the moral decline of the of the secular world; it's the moral decline of the church as well. And we see that permeating churches all around. And so we have to be careful that we're not just limiting it to, to, the, to the world, but also to those in the church where we see a moral decline in, uh, in uh, men and women's lives. And I, I mentioned that we, I suppose we have to go back to the basics. So we went back to to two basic things, or three basic things, and that's where we had to end. But the first basic thing was a, a close, personal, moment-by-moment -moment relationship with the living Christ. 
That is absolutely essential. Some, if, we, if we miss that, if we lose that, all we've got is a bunch of knowledge in our head that doesn't go anywhere. We need to be able to have a moment-by-moment, day-by-day, vibrant relationship with the living Christ. Now, I suppose all of us would say that we have that, and that's, that's good. And I'm, I'm thankful for that, that you get up every morning and the first things you're thinking about are the things of the Lord and you're thanking Him and praising Him for a good night's rest and for His grace to wake up again under His grace and you go out into the day. And as we go out into the day with the various activities of our day, it doesn't mean that you need to be praying every moment of every day. We pray, we're praying without ceasing, but it, the idea is that we are living our lives for His glory in whatever we're doing, whatever we're saying. We're living our life for Him, moment by moment. And when those trials come immediately into our lives, the first thing we do is not try to solve them right away, but turn to the Lord because we're walking with Him moment by moment in our lives. Moment by moment living with Him. And then we talked about the, the knowledge of the Word of God, that we must have a working knowledge of the Word of God. And some of us have studied the Word of God for all our lives because we grew up in Sunday schools. We, we were under the sound of the teaching of the Word of God at the Gospel Hall. We were under the sound of His Word at the assemblies growing up. We went off perhaps to school and learned. We have grown up knowing and understanding the Word of God. But if your mind is anything like my mind, and I hope it's not, but if your mind is anything like my mind, I easily forget things. Things that I've studied over and over and over again, I'll go back to them again a few years later and have to study them all over again because I forget. It's easy for me to forget. So I am required to go back. When I begin a message, when I begin preparing for a message, it's like I'm doing it for the first time because I've, I've forgotten so much of what I studied before. Now you get the basics, and the basics always stay with you. And you get the truth of the stories, and those always stay with you. But the details sometimes seem to fade away. And over the years, as I've dealt with that, I've been thankful to the Lord. First, it was kind of a hard thing to deal with. Later on, it was, Lord, I thank you. I'm thankful that I have a mind like this because it drives me back into your word every time. I have to keep looking at it. I have to keep remembering it. I have to keep growing in, in, in your word. So uh, knowledge of the word of God is imperative for us living in the world in which we do. It was important for Elijah living where he was. He knew the word of God. And we'll see that as we progress. He had understanding of the word of God, primarily in the area of the curses that would come upon men, upon the kingdom, had they turned their back against them, as we find in Deuteronomy 28. He was familiar with it, as we'll see as we move forward. So there is that obedience to that, or the knowledge of the word of God. Then there's the obedience to the things that we learn. It's easy to learn. It's hard to obey. And I think all of us would agree with that. It's, it's easy to learn the truths and say amen to the truths, but then when we have to live them out day by day, it becomes far more complex because we are living in a very complex society with all kinds of nuances of things and all kinds of areas to distract us. And therefore, we must do, give due diligence to our thinking as we're doing things day by day in our lives, that we are being obedient. And that comes that comes true because we're bombarded with things every single day, aren't we? We're bombarded with things on the television. We're bombarded with things as we walk around, as we, as we travel about. We're bombarded by things in school, by all the responsibilities, and we need to be vigilant. 
that we would be those who are not compromising, but standing true for the word of God. And that becomes difficult. So that's where the rubber meets the road. So you have these three areas that are those basic things that we need to get back to, and they need to be fresh in our mind. And the story of Elijah goes back to these three things. As I suppose all the narrative of Scripture does, it goes back to these three basic things. A knowledge of the Word of God, and relationship with the living God, and obedience to the things that we learn. Now, it's very interesting, and I'm sure all of you over the course of your educational times have read through the, the rise and fall of the Roman government, uh, the Roman uh, civilization government. What's that? Empire. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire that was written back in the 18th century. It was a six-volume book. It's kind of, kind of hard to get through and weed through, but it is, it is worthwhile reading because it helps you understand what took place in, within the Roman Empire that caused it to fall. Now, why do I go through that? Why do I want to be looking at that? Well, listen, to what, listen to what the five basic things. Now, remember, this was written in the 1700s. This was written in the, the mid-18th uh, century. He attributed the fall of the empire to five basic things. One, the rapid increase of divorce, the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis of human society. Number two, higher and higher taxes and the spending of public monies for free bread and circuses for the populace. Number three, the mad craze for pleasure. Sports becoming every year more exciting and more brutal. This is 18, 1700s, the fall of the Roman Empire. Number four, the building of gigantic armaments when the real enemy was within and the decadence of the people. And lastly, the decay of religious religion and faith fading into mere form, losing touch with life and becoming impotent to warn and to guide the people. This is Israel at the time that we're reading right now. This is Israel. This is our country right at this moment in time. We fit these things as Israel did back then. Now, how did, this, how did these things affect the average everyday life of those in Israel in the northern kingdom? or those in the southern kingdom of Judah? How did it affect their day-to-day lives? Watching all of this taking place. Those who had grown up hearing of Jehovah, but many of them now, it had been years and years, 57 years, I think, from the time of Solomon. And they had seen Solomon's kingdom degrade. And so these people grew up thinking, this is the way religion is. It's pluralistic. It has all of these different gods. It has all of these different things. And Jehovah is one among many. They would have grown up with that kind of philosophy. How did this affect their life? The nation had been torn apart after the death of Solomon. They knew their heritage. They knew their history. They knew what a great nation they were. They knew about the deliverance they had had out of Egypt. They knew about the Passover. They knew that God had been with them and led them through the wilderness. They knew all of those stories of their past. And yet they had allowed themselves to be swayed 
by the culture and the people around them. You see the danger? You see the danger within the church today? To be swayed and moved by the culture around us. We fall into these same problems, the same issues. The evil that prevailed in the southern kingdom was a result of Solomon's departure. And we recognize that. And the kingdom was torn apart into 12. And 10 in the northern. And then the two or the one in the southern, Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom. Although it's always called, referred to as Judah, as one unit. Now listen, let's, let's think for a moment. And I, we can get involved in too much history and lose up all our time. We don't want to do that. But we recognize that the real issue in, in these whole, this whole story of Elijah boils down to three people and two gods. Three people and two gods. You have Baal and you have Jehovah. You have, or Yahweh, however you want to term it. You have Ahab, you have Elijah, and you have Jezebel. Those are the three people that are the primary characters in these stories. Now, there are a lot of other side characters that will come in that have become very important in the story. But in the, in the main, mainstream of things, those are the things that are going on. So when Elijah comes on the scene, when Elijah comes on the scene, it is in the midst of a time when when uh, Ahab had already married Jezebel, who was, a, uh, who was of Sidon. She was a princess of Sidon. She was, and her father was a priest of Baal. You can find this not only in Scripture, but it's also extra-biblical, that you can find that she was a, would have been a, priest, uh, a priestess of, uh, he was a priest of Baal. She was his father. She had been steeped in Baalism. That was her religion. It was the religion of the Philadelphian uh, Oceans, or which Sidon is. It was the religion of those nations around them. Ashtaroth being the female counterpart, the one who was the fertility god. Now, Balaam uh, was this. Let's see if I can explain this and without losing the background. Baal was considered to be in Sidon, in Philonosia, in Carmel, in some of these other places, to be the storm god. He was the storm god. He was the one that was responsible for rain. He was the one that was responsible for raining on the earth so that they could produce and have crops and have everything that they needed. Now, you see this how this plays into this story. He was the storm god. And then in times when the, there was drought, or in times of the year, every year in those arid nations, there would be a time when there would be no rains. They'd have the early rains, the latter rains, but they would have no rains, and it would be dry. So here was the god of rain, the storm god, who was not producing rain. And the people that worshipped Baal said, well, what happens is, is mocked who is another god, he murders, he murders Baal. And I always want to say Baal. Baal, I'll try to keep it Baal. He murders Baal, and Baal is no longer able to produce rain because he's dead. 
But later on, Ernat will raise him up again and he will come back to life and rains will come again. So when you're having a drought, he's, he's out of the picture for a while. But don't fear, Ernat's going to come along eventually and raise him up and he will be able to produce rain again. And that was the story behind Baal. That's what he, that was his position. So now you have Baal. Now you see when, when Elijah comes on the scene, Elijah has been praying. We know that from James, don't we? That he was a, he, he was a, ah, he was a man just like us, who he prayed. It says in James, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its, its, its life. Now you see what he's doing. Elijah is saying, I have, I have studied, I know the word of God. I know that one of the curses that God will bring on a nation that, that moves away from him and doesn't obey him is that he will bring famine and he will bring drought on the land. He will withhold the rain. And he's praying and he's praying that God will withhold the rain. Now he doesn't say, it doesn't say anywhere in scripture, it doesn't say anywhere in scripture that God told him to go to Ahab and tell him that it wouldn't rain, does it? It doesn't say that. We're going to be looking at, as we go through these weeks, we're going to be looking at the seven times that God communicates with Elijah. He has not communicated to him yet in recorded scripture. And this is what God wants us to see because it's recorded. And so Elijah had been praying, fervently praying that it would not rain. He was convinced in his mind that God was going to bring curse upon Israel because of their sin, because of the evil of their ways. And he goes now to Ahab and he says, it is not going to rain until I say so. Imagine such boldness. Can you imagine such boldness? Was that boldness in his own boldness, in his own sense of, of who he was? No, he was a Tishbite. He was from the other side of the Jordan, from those insignificant people, from the two and a half tribes that, that went over and stayed over on the east side of Jordan, who sometimes in the nation of Israel, on the other side of the Jordan, they were part of the nation of Israel, but on the other side of the Jordan, they considered them to be, you know, those are kind of half. They're not really a part of us. They're on the other side of the Jordan. They didn't even come into the land that was promised to us. We know how the story went. We know that they were allowed to by Moses to stay there, allowed to, by Joshua to, to occupy that land as long as they came in and helped the land conquer, the, helped the others conquer the land which they were willing to do. But they were considered less. Now out of that little place of Tishbe comes this great prophet who will be the most, one of the most powerful prophets in all of Israel's history. He is mentioned more times by name in the New Testament than any other prophet. He doesn't have a book that he wrote. He doesn't have anything like that. He just comes suddenly on the scene. He just appears. Kind of reminds you of Melchizedek, you know. He just kind of appears. Of course, we have his heritage. We have, but Melchizedek just appears on the scene, and so does Elijah. Just boom, there he is. It's a troubling time, and Elisha appears, and he has been praying. He has been praying. He was going to be fervent for Jehovah, just like Jezebel was being fervent for Baal. 
Jezebel's goal was not to have pluralism in the land of Israel, but to have, have a religion on Baal alone. She tried to wipe out the prophets of, of, of Yahweh, the prophets of the Lord. She tried to wipe them out. She went to kill. She killed a hundred of them at one time. And, and then Naboth took them and hid them in a cave, you remember, to preserve them and fed them, protected them. Her goal was to wipe them all out so that Jehovah would not have a voice any longer in the land. She was going to promote Baal and Baal worship exclusively. She was, not a, she was not one who wanted pluralism. She's not one who wanted the worship of several gods along with Baal. Baal alone in his cohorts alone were to reign. So, Elijah comes on the scene. I hope we've set the scene okay. Elijah comes on the scene and he says to Ahab, some say maybe he wrote this to him. Some others say maybe he presented it to him. Some say he maybe stood in his presence. I think he stood in his presence. And I think he probably, (laughs) I shouldn't say probably, maybe he went like this. Ahab, it is not going to rain again until I say so. And he's basing that on Deuteronomy 28. The curse is going to come upon you and it will not rain until I say so. That's bold. That's bold. What are things that we might say in such boldness? What are things, stands that we might take in such boldness? We might say to someone, the Lord is coming again, and you better be ready. That's that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? That's pretty bold and straightforward. We don't say that very often to anyone. Perhaps to those who are living with us, walking with us, people we see at work, people we say that when the conversation turns around to spiritual things, that we are not those who kind of shy away, but those who will profoundly say with with conviction in our heart, the Lord is God. And I don't care about all the other things you make out. You can talk about all those other things all you want, but there's a day of judgment coming. There's a day of judgment coming. The day of the Lord will come. I I suppose we fear a little bit, but that's okay. I bet Elijah had a little bit of fear. And we're going to find out that he had a lot of fear at some points. Then the Lord says to Elijah, now the first communication comes to Elijah. The first communication. And the Lord sees his boldness sees him standing there proclaiming what he proclaimed. He said, it will not rain as the Lord God of Israel lives. And this is the other important part of that, because we'll see this as we get further along. I'll mention it now just so it's in your mind. One thing, he was a storm god. The other thing is that he died. And during that time of death, nothing could happen. Elijah's going to prove God lives and he's the one who controls nature. God lives, and he's the one. It doesn't matter if you're in drought, God can bring rain. It doesn't matter where you are, God can bring rain. God can bring lightning down from heaven, fire down from heaven to consume a sacrifice in the altar, and we're getting ahead of ourselves. I have to save that for when we get to Carmel. But he's the God who controls these things, not Baal. You want to challenge 
I'll challenge you, he says. I'll challenge you. The Lord is God, and the Lord alone is God. And so the first communication comes to him. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Okay, Elijah, get away from here now. Get away. And he brings them to a safe, secure location, and he hides him away. He hides him away for this period of time. He hides him away by the brook Cherub. He hides him away. And in that secret place where he hides him, he commands the ravens. That's a cool verse, isn't it? That's a cool verse. And you've heard the, the, the preaching brethren over the years that have mentioned this verse and the idea that there was water that God provided streaming down the brook Cherub. And God commanded ravens who are ravenous, who will, who will fight over a little bit of meat that's on the ground, who are like vulture-like, and they're, gonna, they're not going to take a piece of meat and then carry it and give it to a man somewhere, bring him bread, bring him. But God, their Lord, commanded it. And so it was done. The Lord Jesus could stand on a troubled sea and say, peace be still. And even the wind and the sea obeyed him. There's power in the voice of God. There's power in the command of God. Do you believe there's power in his command? Do you believe there's power in his word? Then the words he has spoken to you have power. They have power. And so to repeat the words that he has spoken to us has power. It is powerful. So he secrets him away and he brings him to the brook cherub. And there he's sitting by the brook cherub, secreted away, waiting now for what the Lord would do next. And then the brook dries up. It's inevitable, isn't it? There's a drought. There's no rain coming down. There's no water to flow down the stream. Sometimes when we pray, we ought to be aware that the things we pray for may have consequences that you're not thinking about when you pray. You know, there's a song, Have Thine Own Way, Lord, Have Thine Own Way. And we sing it with gusto and we, and we mean it in our hearts. Have Thine Own Way. You are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after Thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. And you say, have thine own way, Lord. And the Lord brings cancer. And the Lord brings a thing that, that catches you unawares. Have thine own way, Lord. Only in good things or in the troubling times as well. Have thine own way, Lord. You remember when I was here last year, we talked about a little boy named Elijah, which is interesting. But a little Elijah. And he was, a, he was a boy who was was dying of cancer. And he struggled and struggled and struggled. Parents knew the Lord, committed him to the Lord, and the Lord chose to take his life. Have thine own way, Lord. I think the older I get, and some of you are, Far older than I am. Some of you who have far more wisdom. But 
as I got as I get older, I find it easier and easier to say, Thy will be done, Lord. Because I don't have control over these things. I can I can worry myself sick about stuff. I can be anxious about this, anxious about stuff that, that may or may not even transpire. I can be anxious about finance. I can be anxious about, about sickness. I can be anxious about pandemics. I can be anxious about all kinds of things. But Lord, have your own way. And if it's your way, then I can be content. I can be content with such things as I have because you have promised I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. To be content in the things that God has allowed, that God has ordained into our lives. Have thine own way. And so the brook dries up. He called for a drought. He called for no rain. Now he was going, he had to have the consequences of what he prayed for. But God, but God was with him. And God already knew what he was going to do. And we'll see that when we come to next week's lesson. Our time is gone. As was already said, it goes by way too quick. It even goes by much quicker for the speaker than it does for the listener. I had a, I think I shared this with you last time I was here, but I was speaking in an assembly. I think it was in New Jersey. But I, I got up and that was like one of my first times to speak there. And uh, I asked, I forgot to ask what time it ended. So when I got up, I said, oh, by the way, what, what time does this service end? And one of the guys in the back said with a fairly loud voice, brother, you speak as long as you want to. We're leaving at noon. <laughs> Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for characters like Elijah. We're thankful, Father, for men of courage and strength who knew your word and were willing to proclaim it. And Father, when he did, it was time to hide. It was time to be secreted away, to be protected by you, to be provided for by you. Your hand provided for him in that secret place. And so, Father, we're thankful for what you did. Thankful for the example of one who would sit and wait on your, on your next leading. Sit and wait for you to give direction. And so, Father, may our hearts be that way. May we be Elijah-like in the way we look at life, the way we look at the world around us, the way we look at the moral and spiritual decay around us. May we look at it through lenses of your eyes, lenses of your word. And may we be bold to stand firm for what you have taught us and for what we know. May we live moment by moment with you, walking with you, close to you, and may your word be in our lives for your glory and for your honor. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.